A couple of weeks ago, my family and I had to fulfill a difficult ministry responsibility as I served uh, as the speaker in Destin, Florida during spring break <laughs> for the University of Texas uh, Young Life, College Young Life trip. And uh, so I was out there with my family and 200 uh, Longhorns, and even as a diehard Aggie, it was a sweet, <laughs> special time and a special experience for my family. And before we left, we got together and we decided that we were going to take our time getting out to Florida. And so we decided to, to stop in New Orleans for a day and spend some time there. And you may or may not know this about New Orleans, but it's home to one of the great World War II museums in all of America. It was founded by great, the great author and historian Stephen Ambrose, who wrote a number of books, including Band of Brothers, amongst many. And me as a history major from college, a former history teacher, uh, and someone who loves that period of history, this was on my list of things that I needed to do. And so somehow I convinced my sweet wife to let me go. And not only that, to let me go by myself. Because I really wanted to soak in the various exhibits and really just get a feel for the museum. And, and right before I was about to leave the French Quarter where we were, the museum's just about a mile away. And right before I was about to take off, my oldest son, Elijah, looks at me and says, hey, Dad, can I come? And I was already feeling kind of guilty about the whole thing, to be honest. And I knew it would impact my visit, but I couldn't say no. So I said, Elijah, come on, let's go. And we went to the museum together, and then an amazing thing happened. He was completely mesmerized by the place. I mean, just enthralled by the various exhibits and by the various uh, movies that were going on and, and the artifacts there at church. And it was just it was spectacular for me as a dad. And so we walked around the museum and just had a wonderful time. And I learned a few things as we were walking around. The first thing I learned is you need to be careful what you tell your five-year-old son. Because at some point during our conversation, I let him know that Loudermilk is a German name. So he put German name, Nazi Germany, we're Nazis. Started going around telling people that his family were Nazis. And then I said, no, we're a pastor, and it got worse, you know? Just kidding. So that was one, right? But another thing that I was reminded of was just how fascinating history is. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I love the book of Acts. I love studying church history. There's really just something special about looking to our past. Something exhilarating about learning from those who've come before us and that have brought us to where we are this day. Secondly, I, I was reminded as we were walking by the museum how history often pivots on key moments. Key moments where it looks like history could go left, but it goes right. It looks like history is going to go up, and yet it goes down. And maybe that's a key battle, right? Like the Battle of the Bulge. Maybe it's a key figure like the rise of the infamous Adolf Hitler. Maybe it's even a key invention like the atomic bomb. 
These are pivot points in history. Pivot points in history that usher in a new reality, usher in a whole new world. And when you think about the history of the church and that early history told to us through the book of Acts, there are a number of these type of events. These pivot points where instead of going left, the church goes right. And as a result, we're never the same. And Acts chapters 10 and 11 certainly comprise one of those pivot points. And I say this with confidence for a couple of reasons. The first one is this, and I want to do a little exercise in here. I want you to raise your hand if you are ethnic Jew. If you are an ethnic Jew or you descend from an ethnic Jewish line, raise your hand. Not a lot. And yet when we come to Acts chapter 10, which comprises a time period that many scholars put as seven years from the resurrection, this is a Jewish church. It's comprised of Jews. It's a Jewish movement. And yes, they, they brought in the Samaritans in Acts chapter 10, but I need not remind you that the Samaritans were hated because they were half Jew. So they're still Jewish. But Acts 10 is going to change this. When the Holy Spirit descends on Cornelius and those with him, the church, and on these Gentiles, these non-Jews, the church changes forever. And what God is making crystal clear in these two chapters is that he is creating a whole new world, a world where both Jew and Gentile have spiritual equality in Christ our Lord. It's a pivot point in history. And many of us who are here this morning are a result of this. This is part of our family tree. Acts 10, in many ways, gives birth to the branch that we have been able to blossom on. So it's a major, major event. Secondly, we, we know this is really important because it's repeated. It's chapter 10 which Roger spoke on last week, and it comprises the first half of chapter 11, which I'm going to talk about this week. And I don't know if there's another place in Scripture that I can think of off the top of my head where in back-to-back -back chapters you basically have the same story with the same events told roughly the same way. And this is not a mistake. This is not a typo by our guy Luke the historian and the author of Acts. This is not God falling asleep at the wheel of inspiration and leaving Luke out to dry. No, it is repeated because it is important. We repeat what is important. That is a statement of the obvious. That is why every Sunday when you come to church, we want you to hear the gospel. We know that most people in here have received God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. But here's what else we know. We know that some of you haven't. And we also know that it's really important. And so we repeat it. It's kind of like I tell my wife every day, Victoria, I love you. It's not something I just told her on our wedding day when we said our vows and then said, well, that should do. <laughs> we repeat it because it's important. And so with that being said, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 10. We'll start in verse 44 as we once again unpack why this event is so significant and what we can learn from it 2,000 years later. 
Now, as we arrive at verse 44, let me take a minute and just kind of summarize the events that have taken place that have led us here in chapter 10. There's a man named Cornelius. He is a God-fearing Roman centurion, a commander of 100 men. And while he is a Roman soldier, he is also a man who admires the God of the Jews, prays to the God of the Jews, gives alms to the God of the Jews, but is cut off from the God of the Jews because he is not Jewish himself. And yet, Cornelius has a vision. We're told he has a vision where an angel tells him, hey, look, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and here's what you need to do. You need to take a couple of your guys, you need to send them to Joppa, and in Joppa you're going to find a man named Simon, also known as Peter. So Cornelius is like, let's roll, let's do it. So he sends his guys. They head down to Joppa. A day later in Joppa, the apostle Peter heads up to the roof to pray. And while he's up there, Peter has a vision. His vision is different than Cornelius's. In Peter's vision, okay, he, he, has, he is basically told to eat animals that are considered unclean. He is told to violate his understanding of the strict dietary laws of the Levitical law, the Mosaic law. And he's appalled by this. Verse 14 tells us, all the way back in chapter 10, Peter says, But by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, said, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And so Peter's confused about this, but before he has time to really process it, there's a knock on the door. And it's the men from Caesarea sent by Cornelius. Peter's like, what's going on? They said, here's the deal. Our guy Cornelius had this vision, told us to come get you. Let's go. And Peter, led by the Spirit, says, okay, let's go. And so he grabs some of his Jewish believer buddies, and they head out to Caesarea to go meet with this guy named Cornelius and some Gentiles he's gathered at his house. And Peter arrives, and he walks in, and he's like, I probably shouldn't be here. This is not something that I typically do, hang out with Gentiles at their place. This is not normal. You know that, and I know that. But then Peter says, but here's what I also know. I also know that God has brought me here for a purpose. And so here I am. And Peter starts preaching the gospel, and that ends in verse 43 where he says these words. He says, of him, being Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And with that, something amazing happens. The pivot point. Verse 44. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. So Peter is sharing the gospel. He hasn't even gotten to the altar call. Hasn't dropped the hammer. And God moves. Bam. And here comes the Holy Spirit descending from on high. And this is the third time this has happened in the book of Acts, if you recall. As we think back, the first time was Acts chapter 2, where Peter is preaching to the Jews at Pentecost. Spirit comes down. The second time we see it is Acts chapter 8. Peter heads up to Samaria to see the Samaritans, lays his hands on them. Spirit comes down. And so here we are with Peter once again, which is normal, but there's a huge difference. We're not talking about Jews. We're not talking about half-Jews. This time the Spirit is coming down upon non-Jews, Gentiles. And not only just Gentiles, 
It's coming down on Romans, a Roman soldier. And the Jewish brethren there are dumbfounded by this, absolutely perplexed, shocked. They cannot believe what is happening. Verse 45 says, all the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Have you ever like just witnessed something and you don't know how to process it? You're just shocked. You're just, just shocked by what you see. You, don't, you, you cannot understand what is going on. Many of my uh, Aggie friends in here maybe experienced this a couple of weeks ago when Texas A&M was playing Northern Iowa in basketball. And the Aggies completed what was one of the, it probably the greatest comeback in the history of the NCAA basketball tournament. Down by 12 points with 35 seconds left to Northern Iowa. They came back and somehow won the game. And I was watching the game by myself in my living room. And I didn't even celebrate because I didn't really understand what was going on. <laughs> I could not process what was happening. Like I've seen many basketball games in my life and I had never seen anything like that. And these Jews cannot process what is happening. They cannot believe that the Holy Spirit would come down on the Gentiles like this. And, and you may be thinking, well, what about Acts 1? Didn't they listen to Jesus? When Jesus told them in chapter 1 that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth? And the reality is that they are still not thinking Gentiles. They are probably thinking he's talking about all the Jews throughout all the world. They are still, they've got their blinders on, and they're still thinking Jewish. But this event completely changes that. Because this is not a single individual. Like chapter 9 we had with the Ethiopian eunuch, this is multiple individuals. And this was not a, not, not a single conversion far from the presence of the apostles, but multiple conversions in the presence of the leader of the apostles, the apostle Peter. And not only that, we once again see the importance of this event attested to by an undeniable act of the Holy Spirit, which is verse 46. It says, For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. So these Gentiles, when the Spirit comes, they start speaking in tongues. And by tongues, we're talking about real languages. Most likely... Hebrew and Aramaic. They may start speaking in Hebrew and Aramaic, and the Jews there are going, how do they know this? We know Hebrew and Aramaic, but they're Romans. There's no way they would know that. And the implication of this event is clear. The implication is that God is behind this, that God is setting his seal of approval on these Gentiles. And he is attesting to this by a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit in the presence of Peter, just like with the Jews, and just like with the Samaritans. And Peter, realizing what happened, responds in verse 47 and 48. He says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So Peter sees what happens, and he says, these people have received the Holy Spirit just like we did. And then he orders them to be baptized 
just like many of you who took that step of faith a couple of weeks ago. And these folks are baptized. And Peter remains with them for a few days. And this is a total game changer. Total game changer. The church is never the same. And that being said, change is not easy, is it? Change is never easy. It wasn't easy then, and it's not easy now. And this issue of spiritual equality between Jew and Gentile, this question of whether or not a Jewish convert should have to go and become a Jew before becoming a Christian is going to be the first major issue of the church, especially the issue of circumcision. So after spending a few days there in Caesarea, Peter and his guys, they head back to home base and they go to Jerusalem where they are met with some resistance to what's happened. We find this in the beginning of chapter 11. It says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the work of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, the Jewish brethren, took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Isn't that fascinating? They don't say, Peter, you preached the gospel to those guys. They don't say, Peter, why did you baptize them? No, they say, Peter, you ate with them. You went in their house and you ate with them, man. And we're thinking, what's the big deal? But sharing a meal in that time was of extreme value and importance. This is why the religious leaders of that day get furious at Jesus. They get furious at him. They go crazy because he's sharing bread. He's breaking bread. He's sharing meals with the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the castoffs of society. So they're attacking Peter for eating with them. But Peter responds like this. By Peter eating with the Gentiles, he's saying, not only do I accept these guys as brothers in Christ, I'm going to embrace them. We're going to eat together. And so when they give Peter this rebuff in verses 1 through 3, Peter responds, starting in verse 4 and running through verse 17, this way. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying... I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I'd fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and everything was drawn back into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Isn't it interesting how Peter responds? He says, guys, listen, listen. Here's what happened, okay? And he just walks them through what happened. And then he gets to verse 17 and he says, therefore, knowing what I just told you, knowing your history now, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Being a college and singles pastor means I also get to do a lot of weddings. As a matter of fact, there are 13 couples across the street right now in 115 Ivywood as part of a premarital counseling class here at Wayside. There's just something in the water over there. I don't know. What is going on? But when I officiate these weddings and I get to the very end, after the vows, after the exchange of the rings, right before the husband is told that he can kiss his bride, the pastor often says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. In other words, what God has joined together, no one has the right to break apart. What God has joined, no one has the right to divide. And that, my friends, is Peter's argument. Peter says, guys, this is what God did. This is a God thing. And because of that, I don't have the right, nor does anyone have the right to put that asunder. And in beautiful humility, these Jews these well-meaning Jews who understandably were concerned about change after hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years of tradition and a certain way of doing things. They had the humility not only say, okay, Peter, you're right, Peter, but then they have the humility to praise God because of it. And we see that in verse 18. It says, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God. Isn't that awesome? They shut their mouth and they glorified God, saying, Well, then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And yet, make no mistake, this was incredibly difficult. This is so difficult that the guy who's there with Cornelius, Peter, is still going to struggle with this. So much so that he's going to get called out by the Apostle Paul later on for, showing, for not hanging out with the Gentiles. And yet Peter's heart was also transformed to a certain extent that years later when he writes the book of 1 Peter, he describes the Gentiles and he says, But you were once not a people, now you are the people of God. For you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is a true pivot point in the history of the church. And though we sit here 2,000 years removed from it, don't be fooled in thinking there's not some tremendous implications for us this many years later. And so I want to spend the remaining amount of our time this morning going over three of those, three implications that this text has for us moving forward. And the first one is this, the gospel is greater than any culture. The gospel is greater than any culture. So be careful not to elevate your culture 
to the detriment of the gospel. These Jews had lived a certain way for basically 1,500 years under the Mosaic law where they were told, don't eat this, eat that. Where they were told, be circumcised. Where when the Sabbath came and their neighbors, the pagans, are working and farming, they dropped their tools, I'm out. And they took a Sabbath. They are, they are not to intermarry. They are to offer up sacrifices. They head to the temple. This was their life. This was their law. This was from God. This was by his command, and it was good. It had a purpose. But then Jesus comes, and guys, he just flips the thing on its head. He just flips it on its head. I mean, can you imagine how hard that would be? Can you imagine how hard that would be? To look at your past, to look at your upbringing, to look at your culture, to look at your family, to look at everything that you know and say, that's going to have to take a back seat. That's going to have to sit down because God's doing a new thing. He's doing a new thing. And they had to put those things away so that they did not distort the gospel nor deter people from the gospel. And so they put those things away. And this was a struggle for them early on, and it is a struggle until this day. The issues are different, but the wrestling is the same. We all struggle with this, don't we? We all struggle with this, myself included. We all have certain things that those are our deals. So our pet convictions. And we believe they are right and good. Things connected to our upbringing, our tradition, our culture, our church. Those deep-seated convictions. Things like how to worship in song. How to dress in church. How to school your kids. The right things to drink or not to drink. The right way to preach. The right way to celebrate holidays. The right political candidates to support. We all have opinions on these things. So do I. Some of them pretty strong. And that is good. But here's the deal. We must be careful. We must be careful to never let those things become elevated to an extent that they distort the gospel or compete with the gospel, or are given the same preeminence as the gospel, and thus distort it and deter people from the gospel. Many of these Jews wholeheartedly wanted these Gentiles to get circumcised. I mean, this is what we do. For 2,000 years, this is what we do. They understand the gospel, but they also know, but this is how we worship. This is how we roll. And they've got to let it go, guys. They have to open up their hands and they've got to let it go so that their preferences and their traditions and their culture don't distort the gospel nor deter people from the gospel. And the question for all of us, and myself included, is what things have we allowed in each of our own lives that we have brought up and made it synonymous or on par with the gospel? What have we done that's brought, it, that's brought distortion to the gospel in our own lives? You know, sometimes as Christians, we struggle to boldly proclaim the cross because we don't want to offend people. And it's an offensive thing. 
And so we water it down to not offend them. But in the end, we, it, that results in a half gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And at the same time, we as Christians struggle with the exact opposite of this. Sometimes our issue is not that we don't point people to the cross. Our issue is that we point them to the cross as well as 37 other things. And we muddy the waters, people. We muddy the waters. And unknowingly and even unwillingly, we distort the gospel and we deter people from the gospel. And look, as a quick aside, please hear me. Please hear me. I am not saying it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live. Of course that matters. We are Christians. We are defined by what we believe and who we believe in. That is who we are. And we do not let that go, no matter cultural pressures or the outside world. Also, we are the people of God, his church. And so we call each other to live a life worthy of the calling by which we have been called. But we must be careful to not elevate every belief as if that is the issue on which the gospel hinges. We do a disservice to the gospel when we do that. Because the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And if you trust in him, he will forgive you of your sin. He will cleanse you of your unrighteousness. And he will make you acceptable to God by his grace for his glory. That is the gospel. And the gospel is greater than any culture. So we must be weary of elevating anything else to on par with the gospel. Secondly, God does not show partiality, so neither should we. God does not show partiality. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Peter writes or states, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. I want you to think about this. For his entire life, Peter had understood Gentiles to be anti-God, second-class, subhuman losers. That's his view of the Gentiles, right? The Jews are chosen. The Gentiles are an abomination. And yet there he stands in Caesarea, face-to-face with his supposed enemy, who is yearning for the same God, yearning for it. And Peter has this amazing realization Where it's like he's standing there and he realizes, wow, God loves you too. God loves you like God loves me. Jesus died for your sins and for mine. And then when he preaches the gospel and the spirit comes, he not only realizes that they are saved by the same salvation, but they've also been given the same Holy Spirit. I mean, just a powerful moment for Peter and those with him. God is not one to show partiality, but rather welcomes all who believe, all who fear him, all who walk in the light. And this is why racism and prejudice are so anti-gospel. They're just so anti-gospel. And they have no place in the church or in the life of a believer. And this is not a political issue. It's not a matter of being politically correct. This is a gospel issue. It's a matter of being Christ-centered. So whether it's white, black, brown, Poor or rich, Ivy League or illiterate, male or female, old or young, 
French-speaking, Arabic-speaking, English-speaking, designer suit or, or torn rags for clothes, homeschool, public school, private school, all inked up or no ink at all, blue hair, pink hair, gray hair, no hair, no piercings, no end to the piercings. God does not show partiality. So neither should we. Neither should we. As Jude 3 tells us, we are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. And we are to hold firm on this faith, and then we are to welcome all those who believe. God does not show partiality, and neither should we. Lastly, the gospel is for all and meant to be shared. The gospel is for all and meant to be shared. Cornelius, yes, he was a good man. He's a good neighbor. He prays to God. He gives to God. He longs for God. He's probably a good father and a good husband. But guess what? He's not saved. He's not saved. And we know that from verse 14. When Peter comes home and into Jerusalem and he's talking to the brethren there and he's recounting to them what the angel had told Cornelius. Verse 14 says, And he, being Peter, will speak words to you by which you will be saved. You and all your household. What did Cornelius need to be saved? It wasn't that he needed to become more Jewish. It wasn't that he needed to read more. It wasn't that he needed to memorize more. It wasn't that he needed to give more or hope more. It wasn't even that he needed to put down his sword as a Roman centurion. What Cornelius needed was Jesus. He needed the gospel. The gospel. And this is why the words of Paul in Romans chapter 10 are so fitting. And such a profound place to end this morning. Paul writes, starting in verse 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The gospel is for all and is meant to be shared. But people will not hear it without a preacher. And it's not talking about me. It's talking about someone who will speak Jesus. Will speak Jesus. How beautiful were the feet of Peter to our guy Cornelius as he brought the gospel of good news. How beautiful were the feet of the one who brought the gospel of good news to each one of us. And how beautiful are our feet that God will use to take the gospel of good news to the ends of the earth. A gospel that is greater than any culture. A gospel that is given without impartiality. And a gospel that states whoever 
believes in him shall have eternal life. That is the good news of the gospel. And that is what we celebrate and commemorate as we come to the communion table. As we gather as the body of Christ to remember what happened to the body of Christ on Good Friday. And then to what happened to the body of Christ on Easter morning. You know, one of the great knocks against Christianity in our public perception is that we are exclusive and judgmental. Exclusive and judgmental. And yet the reality is we are the most inclusive religion in the world. Anybody who believes is accepted by our God. It is inclusive as inclusive gets. But it is exclusive for a reason. Because it is the person and the work of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the grave. It is by his wounds that we are healed. And so the exclusivity of the gospel is because there's only one God-man, Jesus Christ. That's why John 14, 6 says, John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's exclusive because he's all we got. He's all we got. So I want to invite the, the men forward as they pass out the elements. You'll receive a small piece of bread. Represents the body of Christ that was given for us. We get a small cup of grape juice. It represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for our sin. We invite anyone in here who knows Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, to partake in communion with us. Please hold the elements and we'll take it together at the end. But in the meantime, I invite you to go before the Lord. Thank him, praise him for what he's done. Confess if there's any sin in your life that you need to confess to him and we'll take them together here in a minute.
world that is broken, so divided. And we know that we shouldn't be surprised by that. It's a fallen world. And yet Christ came, as Roger talked about last week, Christ came not just to reconcile us to our Father in heaven, but Christ came to reconcile us to one another. Across gender lines, racial lines, language, continent, he's the great reconciler. And he reconciled us through his body as it was broken on the cross. As John the Baptist saw, Jesus said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's just a piece of bread, but it represents God the Son whose body was torn and given for our sin. Eat this in remembrance of him. We also hold a little bit of grape juice. It's just juice, but as you look at it, it represents the blood of our Savior that was poured out for you and for me as he healed that great divide between us and our God. Drink this in remembrance of him. Pray with me, please. What, is, what a blessing and a privilege it is to know you, God. And even beyond that, not just to know you, but to be known by you, to be loved by you, to be saved by you, to be set free by you, to live in hope because of what you are continuing to do in us, to live in hope because of what you will do with us at the end, and that in the midst of this broken world that we reside in, that our hope in you is sure. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Acts chapter 10 and 11, our family tree. Our family tree. Thank you for the gospel of good news. And thank you for the beautiful feet that you sent to bring that gospel to each one of us here. Lord God, we love you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. We'll have prayer partners up here. We'd love to pray with you. For the rest of you, have a great day. We'll see you back here at 3 p.m. for the town hall meeting.